is from John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, friends. I got the same joy that I had last gathering um, with you guys. I love this community. Y'all like, whatever, bro, get to it. Um, <laughs> so the chorus of one of my favorite songs growing up, growing up, <laughs> one of my favorite songs growing up was, please believe that somehow, some way, we gotta make it up out this hood one day, somehow, some way, we gotta make it about this life. Come on. Somehow, some way, we gotta make it about the hood. One day, boom, boom, boom. Someday, we gotta make it about this life. You never thought you heard Jay-Z in church, huh? <laughs> but this song was by Jay-Z, Beanie Siegel. What is a Beanie Siegel? I don't know, but anyways. <laughs> Beanie Siegel and Scarface. And I would hear it frequently in the passenger seat of my father's car, my father's car, excuse me. In their respective verses, each rapper described their experiences growing up in their hoods. Each expressed the hardships of poverty and how that cultivated a deep longing within them for a quality of life that was better than the one that they were experiencing, but not only for themselves, but for those around them as well. And the reason why this song was so meaningful to me growing up, and still is to this day, even though I say listeners' discretion advised, um, it's because I long for that too. I want a quality of life that is better than the one I've been experiencing. From Philadelphia, go Eagles. And <laughs> what I saw growing up though, was a lot of forms, it, it was various forms of violence, drug usage and abuse, and addiction, death from disease, my peers getting swept up into the destructive cycles of our neighborhood struggling to keep food in the fridge and not being able to afford the utility bills. I mean, you, you name it, the list goes on. And I remember thinking to myself, this can't be that they're, they're all, all that there is to life, right? There has to be more than this. And what I can say in hindsight is that I really wanted to experience life to the full. Who else can resonate with this type of feeling? Although your circumstances may look different, as long as in all of us. Look, I don't know about you, but I've spent years striving to save up enough money to buy a home so that I can cultivate a healthy environment for not only myself and my family, but for my friends and my extended family to come in because deep down there's something in me that desires for a community to be endowed in love and peace. Or you spend days begging God to heal your child or your parent or your relative or your friend because there's something in you that desires a life of longevity, not only for yourself, but for those that you love. Where you look forward to hanging out with your friends because you can't wait for another gut-twisting laugh. Because there's something in you that desires a life of delight with others. There's something within us as humans where we long for a quality of life that is good, beautiful, and whole. Amen? Amen? All right, I'm going to walk up. No, I'm sorry. 
This is evident through our attempts to shape our lives in a way that we think will satisfy the longing. And yet, even when we have the good things, having the house, having the the good community group, all of those things are good, but sometimes the longing still persists. There's something much deeper that you long for, that Jay-Z and Beanie Siegel and Scarface long for, and that I long for. This longing finds its origin in a story that has been told for thousands of years. Okay, y'all ready? Children of God, we're gonna have story time. (laughs) It's the story of the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, there's a dry land and God causes water to come up from the land. And from the ground, he forms a human and breathes his life breath into the human and the human becomes alive. Then he plants a garden in a region called Eden. And within that garden are many kinds of fruit trees that the humans can eat from. And at the center, there's two specific trees that many of you can tell the name of. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and bad and the tree of life. And there's a river that flows out of the garden and splits into four. And God places the human in the garden to work and keep it. That's the responsibility of a priest, as you will see in the later biblical stories. This infers that the garden is God's temple. It's his house. It's where he gets boogie. It's the overlap of heaven and earth. And then God splits the human in two, and then the two become one back again in marriage. But God gives one stipulation for the humans to experience the Eden life in his home. And it's obedient to his instruction not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Are you with me so far? Okay. They can eat from any other tree in the garden, including the tree of life. And eating from the tree of life is God's invitation to partake in his divine life and to be transformed. God wants to share his eternal life with humans in his house. How dope is that? God wants to share with humans. His life force, he wants us to be, he wants to live with us. Are you kidding me? However, the story takes a sharp turn, as many of you know. Little snake creature come in there. But when the snake enters the scene and deceivingly influences the humans, they eat from the forbidden tree. They succumb to the lie of the snake, and instantly they began to die. That was the consequence of eating from the knowledge of the tree of good and bad, is death. But this was the beginning. And as they began to die, God came walking in the garden looking for them as they hid, and they began finger-pointing. And God spoke of the consequences of the actions of the snake and the humans. And the end of the scene in Genesis 3. Was I on time with that? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden. I need to drink some water. Lord have mercy. The river of life, right? Anyways. (laughs) On the side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Their deaths had begun when they ate of the forbidden tree, and now something was broken within them. But God, even in this consequential matter, 
is being merciful to these humans by preventing them from eating from the tree of life. Why? Because they're dead inside. If you eat from the tree of life, yes, you will physically live forevermore, but you will paradoxically be dead at the same time. What kind of situation is that to live in? So, they're exiled out of the garden, and then death would fully encapsulate them one day. Death outside of the garden is now a part of all of our stories. You and I are dying. People are dying. Just like that. And we long to return back to the Father's house where we were designed to live with him forever. The problem is that the way to the tree of life is guarded. And the only way to get back into the garden is through the cherubim sword, and it's fatal. To make matters worse, we don't live outside of the garden by ourselves. The snake is out here too, and he's running rampant. He's been running rampant for thousands and thousands of years, spreading his lies and deception. Every corner of this earth has been impacted to some degree. But as the biblical story continues, God does not abandon humanity. Rather, he forms a covenantal people that he will dwell with among, outside of the garden. God is determined to make sure that his plan to dwell with humans will be accomplished. And now Israel is the vehicle, the next step in the plan to make sure that that happens. Are you with me still? This is all going somewhere. Just hang in there with me. And it would be through that people that the Eden blessing will return to humanity at large. One stage of this was in Exodus 25, where Moses is on a mountain, and God begins to give him the instructions for building a tabernacle where God will live with them in the wilderness. In Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, God said, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And what's fascinating, okay, this is some nerd stuff. Just hang in there, please. But what's fascinating about the tabernacle is that the layout, it's pattern after the layout of Eden. The tabernacle, you got the courtyard, and inside that you got the holy place, but then at the center you have the holy of holies, which is where God's divine life and presence resided. So the idea is that the further one went into the tabernacle, the closer you were to God's divine life and presence. However, the issue is that the people at large could not enter into the presence. But only the high priest, and only the high priest could do so once a year. And even then, his life was at risk. What was once a cool day, a cool day's walk in the garden is now a dangerous venture. The curtain that separated the holy place and the holy of holies had the cherubim embroidered on them. So the high priest had to go through them into the presence of God. But even when he was in the holy of holies, you had the Ark of the Covenant, which has the two cherubim on the side, and then God's presence does some hovery thing over top. I wasn't there, I don't know, but let's let's just imagine. It's all Garden of Eden imagery. Are you still with me? The structure of Eden was that you had the the region of Eden, and inside that you had the garden, and then at the center you had the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. The idea is the same. The closer you go into the garden, the closer you go to God's divine life and presence. But exile is a part of the equation. 
And now you have to go through the cherubim with the sword. The tabernacle served as a symbol of God's residence among his people. It was the overlap of heaven and earth. Yet the tabernacle was not the goal, but it was a means. The longing within humans for Eden life in the house of the Father cannot be experienced to the full in this stage. This was only a taste. But another stage of God's dwelling among humans was the building of the temple in Jerusalem. And the structure and imagery of the temple was the same pattern. You had the temple courts, the holy place, and then the most holy place. And the ark was in, it's the same thing. And yet, the issue is also the same. The Israelites at large could not enter into the holy place, only the high priest, and it was still a risky venture. Being in the Father's house could not be experienced to the full, even in this stage. It was just a taste. And both the tabernacle and the temple are referenced as God's house house in in the Hebrew Bible. But they were designed to point us back to the garden. Humanity is in need of someone who could lead us back into the Father's house. The snake is out here spreading lies, deception, and death. And humanity is in need of someone who will not only bring us back into the garden, but will do so with truth. And God took his plans to a whole another level. Another. Say no. Turn, turn to your neighbor and say another <laughs> level. <laughs> By becoming the overlap of heaven and earth himself in Jesus. So as Jesus is preparing his disciples for what lies ahead, what he's about to go do, he, we find ourselves at his final meal with them in John 13. He washes their feet as a demonstration of how they were to serve one another. Then he begins talking, to, talking about how one of them is going to betray him. And he starts this whole thing about, hey, I'm leaving, but you can't come with me. I don't know about you, but I'd be freaking out. Bro, what you mean? Where you going? Give me the coordinates. I'll tell Syria, pop it up right now. They've been following this man for years at this point. I would be terrified. Not only that, but one of them is going to betray him. And then he also speaks about, hey, Peter, you're also going to deny me, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter speaks up. He says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay your life down for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is an intense scene. So it's no wonder that Jesus follows up with words of comfort in John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Hey y'all, relax. I'm going to my father's house. There's plenty of space. I'm about to make a space for you and we're gonna have a good time because I'm gonna come bring you back. I'm gonna come bring you back to the father's house. And notice that he says, 
my father's house. In John chapter 2, when he's at the temple and he's clearing out the courts, he says, hey, uh, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Yet in John 14, Jesus is not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. So what is he talking about then? He's talking about the very thing that the temple symbolized. And rightfully so, Thomas is confused. And he's like, hold on, wait a minute. Uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? You didn't give us the coordinates. How are we supposed to know? And then Jesus replies with one of the most well-known statements in the New Testament. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's address the elephant in the room. This statement has been seen as highly controversial for I don't know how long. And the responses fall on a very wide spectrum. Some have really liked, disliked the elements of exclusivity in his words. Like, how dare Jesus? Who does he think he is? Don't all paths lead to God in some way? How is, how is he able to say that he's the way to the Father? Somebody explain that to me. Some have responded by using Jesus' word as a trump card over other people of different streams of faith and thought. We have weaponized his words to get permission to be hostile towards other people. Thank God Dr. D's community isn't weaponizing his words to people who come from a different faith, and yet they're showing the evidence of Jesus in this community to this family. Are you with me? Yeah. And some have been confused by his words, causing questions like, wait, so... If the Father is known through Jesus, then what do you do about the Israelites and the people who came before Jesus? Did they not know the Father? Abraham and Sarah? Like, did King David? I mean, the man wrote most of the Psalms. Like, you telling me he ain't know the Father? What's going on? And the list of responses goes on, but we must remember what Jesus is doing. The context is that he's encouraging his disciples. They're freaking out. And he says, hey, don't worry. You know the way. I'm it. They do not have to panic because he's not abandoning them. Later in this chapter, he promises the coming of the Holy Spirit who will guide them and be with them forever. And the whole time, Jesus' whole mission that he articulates in the Gospel of John is that he's here to reveal the Father, to reveal the Father's heart, his will, his character, and his invitation for all of us to come home. That's what he's doing. And he's preparing to return to the place that the tabernacle and the temple symbolize. He's returning back to the garden. He is the ultimate high priest that enters into the truest holy of holies. He is the one that humanity has been waiting for to re-enter Eden on our behalf and to open up the gates for us. And how is he going to do so? He's doing so by laying down his own life. He's going to pass through the sword of the cherubim and lay down his life so that everybody who comes after him in faith can proceed back into the Father's house. Yo, he's incredible, dog. Like, I'm stunned by this man. And not only is he passing through the cherubim, but he's offering his blameless lifeblood, like the high priest would do with the blameless blood of an animal, 
but it's his own blood that he's walking through the cherubim with and he puts it before the Father and he says, hey, open the gates. I'm tearing the veil. I was talking about, let me calm back down, sorry. That's pretty intense. <laughs> I was talking about this at work with our brother Tim Mackey and our other coworkers at Bible Project. And he had a really helpful way of framing this. And I was like, yeah, bro, that's it. And he said, the Father sent the Son out of Eden to die with us, because of us, and for us. That is, to re-enter Eden to appeal to the Father by his innocent blood, by which, he, which God accepts as a substitute representative that covers for all of humanity. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is keying in on in chapter 9. Starting in 11, he says, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. Hmm. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And then the next chapter, the author's like, yo, uh, not only that, but we as believers can confidently go into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. What was once restricted to the one at the cost of their life has now been opened up by the one who gave his life for the many to come back in. Access to God's divine life and presence in the Holy of Holies is not restricted. It's been opened up by Jesus. And I don't know how that makes you feel, but thank God that this man did that. Hallelujah. Man, oh, okay. Nope. Go back. Okay. No, I will go there. Okay. I just want to be home. That's it, man. I just want to be back in the Father's house. It's all I've been longing for, for as long as I've been alive. Most of my life, I didn't know it. And I see, I see the needs in my community, I see the needs in our nation, I see the needs of people in the world, and we're all longing for the Father's house, whether we name it that or not. I don't know how that lands with you, but it's in you. The Father in his house is accessible today. You don't have to wait till tomorrow to try to get yourself together. Oh, well, let me try to get this habitual sin together before I come. Nah, like, the dishes are dirty. You ain't got to rinse them off. He's got it. You don't have to try to pry the door back open. You don't have to stick your foot in the door. Come in. Does that make sense? That's all I want, man. 
or woman, sorry. Why did I say that? It was stupid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is why I should, you see what I'm saying? I, anyways, <laughs> get back to the notes, dog. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. But the way, the way, the way back into the garden was guarded by the cherubim, but Jesus has gone through the sword, and now he is the way to the Father. The, the lies and deception of the snake have affected us outside of Eden, convincing us to live by our own definitions of what is good and bad. We've been eating from the knowledge of the tree of good and bad, and it's been killing us. But Jesus is the snake crusher in the embodiment of God's wisdom. We can now refuse to abide by the laws of the snake. We don't have to live our lives according to what we sense is good and bad, according to our own sense of direction, because that leads us not to life. But we can follow him, and he will guide us according to what is good and what is not and it will lead to life. Why? Because he is truth. We are dying outside of Eden, but Jesus is not only the way to the tree of life, he is life. We eat from him when we partake in what we call the Eucharist or communion. We're eating from the tree of life, and it's not a snack, it's a meal. And the table is humongous. So come and eat. Eternal life can be accessed right now because eternal life is not necessarily just about living forever. It's a relationship. He says so in a couple chapters from our text today. He says, hey, that this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and he whom you've sent. It's a person. When we partake in the Eucharist, we ingest his divine life. It's what the sacrament represents. When we consume the communion meal, we are eating from him who is life and our longing to live with the Father and partake of his quality of life that it is offered in the garden is satisfied in Jesus. Now hear me clearly. Uh, I don't have a problem saying this. No other teacher, no other king, no other prophet, no other priest, no other leader can return to Eden on our behalf. Only Jesus. There are plenty of teachers and prophets and kings out here. And yes, they can give you some things that taste good, but nothing. It all pales in comparison to the life that Jesus has to offer because only he can open up the gateway back into the garden. Leaders have tried to curate their own gardens of Eden in this world, and look where it has got us. What do you think is happening in our own country besides trying to create our own utopias? But it doesn't lead to life. It causes more division and destruction. Only Jesus can bring Eden and crash it into our reality today. And that is an exclusive claim. Yet the inclusive invitation is that anybody from any place, from any time, from any culture, 
from any geographic region, from any demographic, can come follow him if they lay down their lives in submission to the one who laid down his life ultimately. The gate is open for anybody who would come to trust in him. So throw out the exclusive invitations. It's open to everybody who will come to trust in Jesus. It's not a tradition. It's not a hermeneutic of the scriptures. It's not a specific church. It's a person. He says, come to me. When Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration and and his disciples see who he really is, the father says, hey, you got Moses there and Elijah who represent the Torah and the prophets, and that is humongous to understanding who Jesus is. And he says, hey, this is my son. Listen to him. Because he's what this all has been pointing towards. You guys still with me? Okay, we're going to land a plane soon. And so John the visionary in Revelation gets a taste of what is to come in full. The garden is here, but not fully. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Praise God. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is what is to come. And again, I long for this. That's the Father's house. But the good news is that this Edenic quality of life can be accessed and tasted and seen right now in our discipleship to Jesus. And just as the humans in the garden could experience eating life through obedience to God's instructions, we can experience eating life in our obedience to the instructions of Jesus. Maybe there's someone at work who, for whatever reason, treats you like crap. Is hostile and unkind towards you. The question is, how will you respond? If you choose to obey Jesus' teachings not to respond with retaliation, but with enemy love, you will taste eating life in that moment. But not only will you taste it, you will be a conduit for the other person to taste it as well. Maybe you're a part of a community here at Bridgetown, and you're burdened by your life circumstances or your sin or whatever else. But the idea of sharing what's going on makes you uneasy. And I totally understand that. There's wisdom to making sure you're in a safe space. And if it is a safe space, I just want to encourage you, brother or sister, that being vulnerable with your community is a taste of eating life. We're not designed to carry this stuff on our own. It kills us. Adam and Eve covered themselves up before God and one another after feeling ashamed. And we do so metaphorically. But in the Father's house, we are safe to expose ourselves not only to the Father, but to one another. It is in the Father's house that our deep desire to be seen and known can be satisfied. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for 30 plus years. Anybody in here? Oh, raise that hand proud. 
I see you, sis. And you've been consistently praying for God's kingdom and his will to be done. You are pleading for Eden life. And I am a result of that. Thank you for praying. And guess what? We need you to continue to pray. And those of us who are younger and haven't been following Jesus for 30 plus years, we need to jump on loop. Because there are other people who need to taste this life because people are hungry. I would not be on this stage following this king if older people had not been praying on behalf of me. Before I even came into this world, God had a plan to form a human being like Hakeem Bradley and to, and to conform him into the image of Jesus. But that doesn't, oh Lord, the prayers of you are, it's a participation in what God is doing in the world. We're not passive. The words that we, it's not just throwing up to thin air, talking to a brick wall or a wood wall, whatever. It, it's not that. What we pray is an active participation in the Spirit's work in the world. The father listens to the cries of his children. He's been doing that for ages. So thank God that you've prayed for his kingdom to come because the quality of life that the kingdom offers is synonymous with the kingdom, or excuse me, is synonymous with the quality of life in the Garden of Eden. To be in the kingdom is to be in the garden. Because we come through the king, who is the one who re-enters on our behalf. Okay. Maybe you're stirred about Jesus' invitation to the Father's house. To return to the garden. Come home. Plain and simple. Please come home. Come to the house. The party's going. The Father's excited to see you. The invitation is open even if you and the Father are rocking out strong. You might be in the crib, but come party. It's open to you if you've been straying away and you're desiring to come back home. Please do. It's open to you if you're desiring a relationship with the Father for the first time, that Jesus, Jesus boldly declares that the Father is accessible through him. The question is, will you trust him? So in closing, why did the Father send his son to grab us and bring us back into the garden? Because he loves us. <laughs> That's dope. He always wanted to live with humans. He's always wanted to share his life with us. So much so that the son came to make that happen. What Jay-Z, Beanie Siegel, Scarface longed for is available in Jesus. What you've been longing for, it's in Jesus. What I'm longing for, it's in Jesus. <laughs>